We have spoken about how the Reformation was triggered because of the commencement of a process that culminated with the Industrial Revolution. It took more than 200 years for a feudalistic agricultural society to become transformed into a manufacturing democratic society or at least semi-democratic. It took more than 200 years for the Industrial Revolution to run its complete course and to transform everything. What once took 200 years in our lifetime has now taken exactly 40 years. When we went from a manufacturing economy to a high-tech information economy, that took less than 40 years, but let's be benevolent, let's stretch it and give it 40 say, from the 1960s to now. What has happened now is just as radical as what happened then. And to understand what's happening now, we have to understand what happened then. People who made their living in farming communities knew nothing about armatures or lathes or machine tools or steam engines. Well, the Industrial Revolution began in Iron Bridge Gorge in the Seven Valleys. A new world was born. And those of the old world just could not fit into this new urbanized society with its factories. There was mass social and socioeconomic displacement with resulting political and social turmoil. What has happened now in our lifetime is precisely the same. People who used to work in the coal industry in Newcastle, or the steel industry in Sheffield, or the docks of the Mercy in Liverpool, or in the automotive industries of Birmingham, or in the textile industries of Leeds, those jobs are gone either to the third world or to robots computerized manufacturing systems, those jobs are gone. And people of the inner cities of working class England and the council estates, they find themselves in a world where are you a graduate? Where did you get your degree? How many languages do you speak? Are you computer literate? We don't need 300 people to make one of those. We need 15 people to make one of those who have computer skills. If there is some menial, manual job that has to be done, we'll give that job to Ukraine. We'll send that job to the third world. They'll work for a pound fifty an hour. You want the job here? Now it's gone beyond that. The thinking 15 years ago, even 10 years ago was, the high tech and service trade will be here, the manufacturing will go to India. Now your Dell computer breaks down, you pick up the service line, somebody answers in Bangalore, India, because they can pay a service engineer in India, a graduate, 
between one quarter and one third the salary at most, that's what they have to pay them in England. So now, even the high-tech jobs are going to the third world. An incredible phenomenon. Now we are seeing people with computer skills and degrees in computer science unable to get a job, longing for the good old days. Now it's for the super skilled. Systems analysts, innovators, people who can run computerized cottage industries. What's happening here? What used to take generations of transition now happens within one generation. And now we're even moving out of the high-tech revolution into something even beyond that. People tried to keep the old system going. In the post-war era, the Labour Party overtaxed productive sectors of the British economy to keep people digging coal for collieries that were losing money. The national debt swelled and swelled and swelled until the whole system broke down. Thatcherism comes in. We've got to look to the future, to the new economy. But now, the new economy is no longer secure either. Unless you have a degree in law or medicine or dentistry or are super skilled in computer science, you're not guaranteed anything. Japan had a policy of jobs for life modeled after the old shogun model. You be loyal to the shogun, he'll take care of you. That was the Japanese culture. Only now the shogun became Mitsubishi or Fujitsu, or a corporation. Japan is finished. There's no more jobs for life in Japan. You have a massive, massive socioeconomic displacement that people do not know how to cope with. Because as far as they know, it never happened before, only they're wrong, it did. The challenge for the church is how to bring the gospel into that situation. When everything is changing, you can say, one thing never changes. Amen. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. His word endures forever. We should be saying that. Instead, we're saying the paradigm shift. <laughs> we are redefining Christianity. Unbelievable. And it's getting worse. Worse in the church. In looking at this problem, before we can look forward, our purpose is not simply to learn church history of Britain, but to learn what we can learn from it. What did Wesley and Whitfield do? They understood that the haves had to be servants of the have-nots. And that the educated had to become servants of the uneducated. They also knew the real problem was sin. 
But that social injustice and social and socioeconomic displacement caused crime. Britain was in a bad state. Very few people went to church. It was a thing of the middle and upper middle class and the aristocracy. If the laborers went to church, it was because their employers forced them to. Sweatshop labor was atrocious. It was virtual slavery. Children as young as four were forced to dig 12 to 14 hours a day in coal mines. That's how bad it was. There were robber barons who were profiteers. The textile industry of Britain required cotton from America, the American South. Hence the Calvinists were slave traders. Calvinists from both England and Holland were slave traders. They had to adjust their theology. Tragically and unfortunately, even Whitfield himself, although he was not against blacks, he was pro-slavery. Wesley was against it. Whitfield was a Calvinist. People began coming up with ways to try to explain what was happening. What was clear is the church could not possibly make a difference. The only respite from the misery the working classes had were cheap gin mills getting drunk. They would have fights. Even women would strip off and have boxing matches in the streets in front of pubs, in front of these gin mills. That would be the entertainment, watching people beat each other up, even women. Society became more and more decadent, more and more immoral, more and more violent. Sound familiar? It was turning towards a form of paganism. Only they didn't have New Age religion to go to then. They simply went into decadence, violence, immorality. At this time, Protestantism reached an all-time low ebb. And now, just as Protestantism began as an effort to reform the established church, Rome, now there was a need to reform Protestantism. In Germany, they were called the Pietists. In France, they were called the Jansenists. And in England, they were called the Methodists. The most dynamic church at this time were the Moravians, whose founder leader was Count Zizendorf, a benevolent aristocrat. He combined German pietism, which was a form of Lutheranism, with the much earlier and older ideas that went back to Huss, which in turn originated in England with Wycliffe and Lollardy. And from this came the Moravians. For over 100 years, they had a 24-hour day prayer chain. Playing around the clock. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year for over 100 years. They were a missionary sending movement. John Wesley was born 
in Epworth, near Duncaster, Lincolnshire. His father was a clergyman. He escaped as a baby. The house was on fire and he was burned down and he was rescued. He said he was like a brand plucked from the fire. Believed God preserved his life for a reason, but he didn't know what it was. And he went into the Anglican ministry, did his brother Charles, the hymn writer. He went to colonial America to become a missionary in the colonies, now state of Georgia, Savannah, where he had a failed love affair with a woman. He said, I came to convert the Indians, but who is going to convert me? However, on a storm at sea, which threatened the ship and the lives of those on it, Mr. Wesley saw some Arabians. He saw their courage and their earnest because of their praying faith. And he knew they had something he didn't. And that his church could not offer. Upon returning to London, he and his brother, within a few days of each other, he went in 1735, but in 1738 he came back, were at Aldersgate, the city of London, where he went to a Moravian gospel meeting, where he said, as it were, his heart was strangely warmed. That is how he described the new birth. Unfortunately, the Anglican Church frowned on revivalism and didn't like the Moravians or anybody who was like them. Much as the Moravians said the Lutherans have to be reformed, Wesley realized the Church of England had to be reformed. Had a big problem. He and his followers began meeting on West Street in London, where they were called the Methodists because of their adherence to a holiness rule. He wrote a book called The Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Wesley never equated baptism of the Holy Spirit with, with sinless perfection. He never said, I thank you, we ought to have him sinned in over 30 years. Other Methodists took it to that extreme, but he never did. A Methodist sect like the Nazarenes did, but he never did. They read more into his, his book than, than he said, in one of his books, than he said. He began the society in 1742, and the society was divided into home groups with leaders. Every time the church went down the tubes, God began raising up something new, and virtually all of them began meeting in homes. The brethren were like that. Early Baptists were like that. Certainly, the Methodists were like that. At the age of 48, he made a mistake. He married Mary Vazil, a widow with children. The marriage was not in God's providence. He did it, but he was wrong, and she hounded him and finally left him. She was a thorn in his boot until the Lord took her, or somebody did. But what really made Wesley take off with a meteoric rise 
was his contact with another gentleman, George Whitfield. Whitfield began preaching in coal mining communities near Bristol. These people were digging 12, 14, even 16 to 18 hours a day. Their faces were black, dying of black lung disease, children dying of black lung disease. And he preached the gospel. Speaking about God's anger at sin, but then speaking about God's love. And these people began crying, and the only white you could see in their faces from the tears, because they were all black. Whitfield began doing this on horseback, because they wouldn't let him into the churches. Wesley agreed to do it finally, but initially opposed it because he was too Anglican. But then when the churches wouldn't let him in, he began doing the same thing. When he tried to preach in his father's church in Epworth, where he had grown up, they wouldn't let him in the church where his father had been vicar. So he went into the graveyard next adjacent to the church and stood on his father's tombstone and preached the gospel, standing on his father's great headstone. You can still visit that place. I've never been there, but you can still visit it. Things began to happen. Wesley was an organizer. He put people into these home groups. But what happened was, people began to look to their home groups more than they did to their parish church, even though Wesley never tried to be anything more than a charismatic renewal within it. At first, he was astounded when people were slain in the spirit at the meetings of Whitfield. But once he began preaching publicly, the same thing began happening at his meetings. This was not the Robert Flyard and Colin Dye trash you see today. These were unsaved people falling down under the power of God and repenting of their sin. It wasn't the stupid garbage you see today. However, as people looked increasingly to their home groups and to the Methodist society instead of to the established church, it was inevitable a schism was taking place. In the riots organized against Wesley and those who imitated him, and in the riots organized against Whitfield, very often the local vicar or the clergy would be the ringleaders inciting the mobs to attack them with bricks. They hated revivalism. The church, again, was a dead, middle-class institution. Wesley then began publishing books and pricing them so anybody could afford them. That's why we sell Bunyan 18 pounds for 550. Wesley said, make all you can so you can give all you can. At the same time, his contemporary Whitfield in 1737, 22-year-old graduate of Oxford University, he becomes an Anglican clergyman. He makes 13 trips across the Atlantic to colonial America. Now, Jonathan Edwards was the first indigenous American preacher of any stature, but Whitfield was the first missionary preacher of any stature.
Whitfield was the role model for later people, such as Spurgeon. His message of the gospel was simple, but he also understood the need for doctrine and theology, for discipleship. These men were people God raised up at that time. The great evangelical awakening. It began here, but spread to America under Jonathan Edwards and so forth. These things took off, thanks to Whitfield. Charles Wesley was, of course, the hymn writer. Methodism grew by wildfire because they gave people a sense of direction and purpose and destiny who had been displaced. Like Jesus, they did not ignore people's human need, but they put people's spiritual need first. Wesley began clinics, health care for the urban poor. Schools for the urban poor. Literacy would be for the working classes. The Labor Party, the Guardian newspaper, things which today are virtually godless, have their roots in the influences of early Methodism. Social reform begins to take place on a wide, wide scale. As a direct result of people getting saved. Unfortunately, liberalism will say, simply try to be socially reforming. On the John 12 tapes, sold out or sell out or sold out, we talk about how organizations like Christian Aid are no longer Christian by biblical definition. Things like the Samaritans, Christian Aid, Tear Fund in New Zealand, uh, Bernardo's, Salvation Army. All of these began as gospel preaching organizations who went into a merely social gospel. Methodism went the same way. Wesley said, because of the neglect of reading and preaching and expounding the Word of God, Methodism is already declining in my lifetime. He said, if this is what happens when I'm alive, what's going to become of it after I'm dead? He understood evangelism minus discipleship equals zero. He understood, as did Whitfield, the importance of doctrine. Now, his doctrine was not perfect. Wesley was an Arminian, Whitfield was a Calvinist. There was a lot of things they didn't know about. But they certainly understood the gospel and the importance of moral living as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Methodism became social and fizzled. Another movement came up called the Primitive Methodists. They were like a revival of the Methodist revival. They tried to go back to the original ideas of Wesley, and to a degree they succeeded. In America, it was the Church of the Nazarene under Phineas Brzee in Los Angeles who began the same way, trying to revive Methodism along Wesley's original ideas. Some of them succeeded to varying degrees.
Even many secular historians in part attributed the fact that England didn't go into a revolution like France did due to the influences of Methodism. Now, there was another aspect. England did have a revolution. It had the Civil Wars. It already had had its revolution. That's part of the explanation as well that we looked at in the earlier session. But there was a real fear that what was happening in France with the reign of terror was going to come to England. But there were praying people who had other ideas. This sparked off a massive movement that went beyond Methodism, including abolitionism. Slavery was abolished in the British Empire. John Newton, a slave trader, you know the story, the shipwreck, and he composed Amazing Grace. Went into the ministry, devoted the rest of his life to preaching the gospel and working to abolish slavery. And other people came in his character in the years that followed. The abolitionist movement in Britain inspired the abolitionists in America. And a slave owner who'd become a general in the Confederate Army, the British Army considered him to be the best light cavalry commander in the world at that time, Bedford Forrest from Tennessee. He was the best cavalry commander the South had. And he was radically pro-slavery. He was a slave owner and a slave trader, made a fortune trading slaves. After the war, he became a founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Until the day he was born again. And then denounced the Ku Klux Klan, denounced his slave trading past, and spent the rest of his life testifying about what Jesus did in his life and working for social justice for the blacks of the American South. But it began not in America, it began here. And it began affecting other things. The arts. While the Puritans tried to sequester the arts, what began happening in the 18th and 19th century said, no, redeem the arts. When the cross of Jesus affects the life of an artist, his motive becomes different, his art will become different. Just like the Protestant Renaissance happened in Europe with Rembrandt and so on. A German composer moved to England. Most extraordinary. If you walk down Brook Street in Mayfair in London, you'll see two townhouses next to each other. Two Georgian townhouses. With those blue discs that are historical markers of famous people who lived there. You've seen them in London probably. One, it says, here resided rock guitarist Jimi Hendrix. And his next door neighbor a few hundred years earlier was George... They lived next door to each other on the same street. The two walls of the houses literally joined. Honda was a German who went to Italy to study opera, but the Pope banned opera because it was decadent in the Pope's estimation. So Honda began composing operas without the costumes called oratorios, oratios. We know, of course, the Resurrezioni, but Handel's Messiah is his most famous first performed not at Christmas as we do, but at Easter in Dublin. The Methodist influence then goes into other churches. 
Again, this idea of the haves helping the have-nots, like the book of Acts. The educated helping the uneducated. Among other figures, two really dynamic ones emerge. William Wilberforce and the Earl of Shaftesbury. Working again to abolish trial labor, slavery, and to bring social reform to the oppressed urban poor. But the gospel always came first. They never tried to change society from the outside. They tried to change it from within. And a lot of people get saved in a lot of professions. Education. Journalism. Florence Nightingale turns nursing into a medical science. One social reformer after another who would have testified of their saving faith in Jesus. Into the 19th century, it continues. Today, you have the testimony of Helen Shapiro or Cliff Richard. In those days, they had a pop star who got saved, and this guy was seen as so decadent and immoral. He was unsavable. He composed the penny operas. Queen Victoria was at one point so disturbed by Iolanthe, she said, we are not amused. Social satires, mocking the royal, royal family and so forth. Pirates of Penzance, the Mikado. I refer, of course, to Sir Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan, the Savoy Theatre. He gets saved. And the person who composed the Mikado and Iolanti and the Pirates of Penzance now composes a hymn, Onward Christian Soldier. People are freaked out. The gospel begins affecting the media, the arts, education, healthcare, universities, government, the aristocracy, the poor. It was a time of great awakening and great blossoming that came out of a time of incredible injustice and confusion. If our world is anything, it is unjust and it is confusing. It is my conviction, and always has been, that the same God who did it then can indeed do it now. If we had people who were willing to pay the price and do what Wesley did. Including get thrown out of your own church. Which ultimately the Methodists were forced to. Because they had parallel structures of church government. Then it goes on. In Myland Wastes, near Bethnal Green in London, William Booth stands up and preaches a sermon. Right in the street. The Salvation Army is born. And they began singing onward, Christian soldiers. They actually get dressed in military uniforms. And they were re- recruiting drunks for Christ and things like this. 
in that same neighborhood, a Plymouth Brethren medical doctor finds a poor little boy who was coming to him asking him for a handout for food, frozen to death in the street. This was Dr. Bernardo. His counterpart in Bristol, also from the Brethren, was George Mueller. It went on and on and on and on and on for 150 years. The high church and the low church. You always had the dead high church, but the low church was almost solidly evangelical. They believed the 39 articles. The Methodists had had such an impact that the Anglicans were scared and said, these people must be right. They must be doing something right. Let's see what it is. Oh, they preached the gospel. We forgot about that. In 1761 is born, somebody becomes a shoemaker. He decides, having grown up in Northamptonshire and experienced religion, that he needed to leave the Church of England in order to follow Christ. He needed to get out of the Church of England in order to become a real follower of Christ. He goes to Only, where he meets some Baptists. His name was William Perry. Became quite a linguist. Knew Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, and he was learning Dutch and French. When he came to the Baptist Convention. There was no missionary societies. So Perry stood up and propounded the subject for discussion in a paper he wrote whether the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was not obligatory on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world, seeing that the accompanying promise was of equal extent. Quite a long title for a theological paper. Dr. Ryland, who chaired the meeting, said, or was one of the persons chairing the meeting, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do so without your aid or mine. Andrew Fuller added his feelings as resembling the unbelieving captain of Israel who said, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be. Terry was not afraid to go against the Baptists any more than he was afraid to go against the Anglicans. Today I'm having a hard time finding ministers who will go against either the Baptists or the Anglicans. For anything vaguely resembling a real awakening to happen again, you have to have people willing to do the same kinds of things. But they are very few and very far between. Don't get me wrong, I'm an Anglophile, my family were from Britain. But my background is American cum Israeli. In my house we speak Hebrew, not English, as the main language. My accent is Robert De Niro... Barbara Streisand, Bugs Bunny, James Cagney. 
the very fact that there is a Yank Kum Israeli up here saying this stuff makes a statement in itself. It's tragic. I tell you the truth before the Lord. I'd much rather be out there evangelizing Jewish people and have a Brit standing up here saying these things. I really would. I really would. Terry goes to India. He, and under his supervision, the Word of God, the Bible, is translated into 40 languages. A shoemaker. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Said the shoemaker. What a shoemaker he must have been. Incredible. During this period, someone who comes not long after him is John Nelson Darby. Darby is one of those tragic figures like King Josiah in the Bible who begins right and ends wrong or like King Joash. He took dispensationalism to an absurdly radical conclusion to the point that it began to resemble the Marcionism of the early church, a heresy. And the Plymouth Brethren split from the closed Brethren as a result of the Newton controversy, which was more of a nonsense than it was anything else in the long run. George Mueller, Hudson Taylor... These were the open brethren or the Plymouth brethren. God continued to bless and use them. Some guy named Newton made statements that were not kosher about Jesus, which he retracted and explained. But he would not be forgiven by Darby and the whole movement split because Darby demanded everybody else ostracize him as well. And when they refused to acquiesce to Darby because they believed this person was sincere, then Darby broke with them. To this day, the closed brethren talk about this. Have you considered the question, brother? They're talking about something that happened over a hundred years ago. They're virtually a cult that break up families and marriages now. We had a woman saved. She came to one of our meetings. She got saved in a Pentecostal church. She had been in the closed brethren 34 years, was not born again and didn't know it. But the Plymouth brethren went from strength to strength. We're again talking about the Cambridge Seven, basically. We're certainly talking about Hudson Taylor. We're talking about George Mueller. We're talking about Dr. Bernardo and a lot of other people. Top people. Good people. The best people. The Plymouth Brethren were afraid of the Holy Spirit. That is true. However, they had the most biblical view of church government, the most biblical view of mission, the most biblical view of the Lord's Supper, and they came the closest the Gentile church has ever come to interpreting the scriptures as a Jewish book. Powerful. Incredibly powerful were the brethren. But it was not just the Methodists, the Anglican, or the brethren.
An elephant in Castle London was the Metropolitan Tabernacle. The facade of it still exists. The building was damaged, the original in the blitz and in a fire earlier. The preacher was reading from Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other except me. Spurgeon wound up coming to Elephant and Castle. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Following in the tradition of what the Wesleys had been to Methodism, he becomes now the most dynamic Baptist preacher that had ever been in this country. Young man called the Prince of Preachers. And again, he understood the balance between evangelism and biblical exposition, discipleship. Again, he was one who knew that evangelism minus discipleship equals zero. He said, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. Saving faith is an immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of God's grace. This is what Spurgeon said. Unfortunately, he never enjoyed good health. He had rheumatic gout, which had ultimately killed him. During this period also, slightly afterwards, things began to change. England was now very much a missionary sending country, but the basis or the base of evangelicism began to shift to North America. There would be other great preachers all the way to the 20th century, but probably the greatest English Bible expositor of his century was F.B. Meyer. And I'm happy to see that for once our crew ordered a selection of his books. This man was the greatest English Bible expositor of the century. There was nobody as good as him. Nobody is as gifted as him. We have a variety of his books over there. This guy was incredible. He realized something. He said, well, America got this stuff from us. Now we have to get something from America. And he invites B.O. Moody to England. Among the many who prayed to receive the Lord under the preaching of Dwight Moody, again, a man with a fifth grade education, was Queen Victoria. But something else happened at this time. We normally think of Pentecost or modern Pentecostalism as having begun in Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Or with Smith Wigglesworth in the north of England in Yorkshire. Or the Sunshine Revivals in Australia. Or with the Pentecostal Revivals in Armenia. In fact, none of those were the beginning. Now I myself might be called a biblical Pentecostal. 
What that means is I don't look to Azusa Street or to Smith Wigglesworth or anybody. I look to the Book of Acts and to the New Testament for my Pentecostalism. My Pentecostalism was right from the New Testament. I don't say that there are not true things and good things about some of the early Pentecostals, but I'm saying my Pentecostalism was straight to the New Testament. It's not based on anything from church history. If, if, if Azusa Street never happened, if there was no Smith Wigglesworth, I, I would still be, somebody believes what I believe, simply based on what's in the New Testament. However, the Pentecostal movement, of all things, is initially called the Catholic Apostolic Church. It finds its origins at the Presbyterian Church in Regent Square in London under someone called Edward Irving. Later, Carlisle becomes its main focus, its main place. Irving decides to teach classes regarding the power of evil in the world, and it appears that as part of the course he taught that parishioners should seek the Holy Spirit. And if they did, the Holy Spirit would become manifest in them, and the signs and miraculous gifts such as speaking in tongues and prophecy, would be restored to the church through them. He'd actually met people who'd gone through this as far back as 1830, where several people in the port of Glasgow, Scotland, including Mary Campbell, had spoken in tongues. Irving considered her a prophet. This is 1830, long before Azusa Street. He was a capable preacher. Some people tried to write him off as a flaco, but he wasn't. However, something happened to him. The mistake that that first Pentecostal made was replayed and replayed and replayed all the way to the modern charismatic movement. Doctrine was compromised in fact, sacrificed on the altar of experience. The Holy Spirit always points people to Christ, never Himself. But Edward Irving was so caught up with the signs and wonders and manifestations and the work of the Holy Spirit, he took his eyes off the centrality of Christ. And he came up with this idea that Jesus' human nature was evil. That Jesus, although he had no sin at conception, he took on a fallen nature and overcame it with his divine power. Now, he who knew no sin became sin when God poured our sin on Jesus. But Jesus never had sin. Amen. Secondly, Jesus never once used his divine power. He could have. He didn't walk on the water because he was God. He walked on the water because his Father empowered him to by the Spirit. Satan tried to get him to use his divine power out of concert with his Father and he refused to do it. Changed these stones into bread and so forth. He wound up with absolutely wacky doctrines, false doctrines about the person of Christ that undermined his understanding of the Gospel. I only wish the later Pentecostals and Charismatics had learned from his mistake. Some did. Too many did not. What you've seen happening in recent years 
with the kooks from, from Florida and Canada and all this stuff coming over in South Africa with all the nonsense. Again, none of this is new. This idea, if he prays in tongues, if she prays in tongues, she must be of the Lord. <laughs> Mormons pray in tongues, spiritists pray in tongues, and there's charismatic Catholics who pray in tongues to Mary. It's not of the Lord. Making tongues the test, the be-all and the end-all. Now I say that as one who fervently believes in the biblical gift of tongues. But too much of what has gone on and does go on is not biblical. Revivalism continues through the 19th century into the 20th century when it comes to the area around Cardigan in the mining valleys of Wales. Evan Roberts is there. Evan Roberts was somebody who understood the importance of the power of God. In Cardiganshire, he was deeply constrained that all present should give honor and praise to the Savior. Evan Roberts understood something about revival. But he also failed to understand something about revival. He understood it was a sovereign work of God that we could not make happen. But the way I would phrase it is this. What he understood was, every one of us can have a revival in our own relationship with Jesus. Through repentance and returning to our first love. And if you have a church and everybody in that church returns to their first love, there'll be a revival in that church. But he understood that the Holy Spirit had to be poured out on an entire community. It was the sovereign work of God's Spirit. You could not make that happen. But you could ask God to do it. He said two things were necessary. One was that all hidden sin had to be confessed and forsaken. And two, we had to be open to the power of the Holy Spirit, which he expressed as submission to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. Well, revival did come. And there are all kinds of stories in Welsh church lore that the pack horses that pulled the coal on the trams up out of the collieries would no longer respond to the commands giddy up because the miners stopped swearing and blaspheming at them. Robert's began praying with his family, his sisters, that this move of God would come with his brother and his three sisters. And he felt the convicting power of the Spirit coming upon them as they began to confess their sins, to plead for mercy, and to magnify the Savior in prayer of rejoicing praise. 
Why is it that all the gimmicks and fads I've seen to try to engineer a revival in this country, minus the plus, gym challenge, the laughing thing, the drunken thing, the alpha thing, <coughs> doesn't matter what thing it is, none of them, none of them realized it was necessary to begin with the confession of sin and to plead for mercy and to magnify the Savior in prayers. Those are the things he understood about revival. But there was something he did not understand about revival. Something that others did understand, but he failed to. Evangelism minus discipleship always equals zero. It was like the syndrome you see today in some churches where they preach the gospel faithfully every Sunday night to the already converted. (laughs) The only thing his converts tended to know was the gospel itself. There was the gospel and maybe a bit of milk. They never were weaned onto meat. Tragically, within 18 months, as powerful as it was, it lost momentum. Within two years, it had nearly fizzled. However, the last time there was a revival in this country, in Britain, not counting the present move of God among the gypsies, was in the Hebrides. The preaching of Duncan Campbell 1949, the local presbytery issued a proclamation to be read on Sunday in all three churches, saying this proclamation called the people to consider the low state of vital religion throughout the land and the present dispensation of divine displeasure due to growing carelessness towards public worship and the growing influence of the spirit of pleasure which has taken hold of the younger generation. Duncan Campbell also understood things about revival that people no longer seem to. He said an evangelistic campaign or special meeting is not revival. A gym challenge, a minus to plus, an alpha core, it's not revival. He said some people may get saved and some people may get saved with these things. But he said suddenly the entire community becomes God conscious. The Spirit of God grips men and women in such a way that even work is given up as people give themselves to waiting upon God if that's what God wanted them to do. Not something that can be humanly explained, but it can be biblically explained, he believed. In the church of Barbas in the Hebrides, there were two sisters. 184 and one blind prayed for years and years and years that a preacher would come and bring revival to their church in Barbas. They never lost that vision. One of them was totally blind and the other was quite an elderly lady. But daily, fervently, they continued to pray and pray and pray. Two faithful women who prayed. 
but really prayed. And one day in prayer, one of them saw a vision of the churches in the Hebrides crowded with young people. And it scared her because she was not the kind of person to see such things. So she told her minister, and he told her to pray some more. When Duncan Campbell arrived, the people were expecting him. Didn't know who he was, didn't know what he looked like, but the minute he showed up, they just said, Brother, are you walking with God? They knew it was him. He gave the right answer to the right question. These people understood things about revival that people no longer do. Now it is gimmicks, it is seeker-friendly, it is church growth, it is Bill Hybels, it is Alpha, it is Nicky Gumbel, it is anything and everything except what is biblical, except what works, except what has worked, except what is tried and true. The first place we need to look is, of course, the Word of God. The next place we need to look is to our own history. However, when God works in power... Satan counterattacks and tries to deceive. Because of the new religious fervor, which like any time, you'll have times of low and times of dynamism, Satan hatched another plot in the character of Whitby of Mary the First, etc. This plot was a true reversion to what Whitby was. With Mary, with the Bevington plot, with the Armada gunpowder plot, Bunny Prince Charles Rome tried to use violence, military force, political coercion. Now, they're going to go back to the ancient strategy of spiritual seduction. This was the Oxford movement. People began publishing tracts, so they became called the Tractarians. The main leaders were Edward Pousset and John Henry Newman. What these people attempted to do 
was to begin a rapprochement with Rome. Emphasizing Anglo-Catholicism, high church ritual. They published tracts for the times. There was a person named Kebble who was partners with Toussaint. And they began publishing these tracts. In the 1830s, the movement began to become influential. Newman begins writing to counter the 39 articles. What made Newman so dangerous was he converted to Roman Catholicism. Entered its priesthood and was promoted through the ranks rapidly to become a cardinal. Claiming to be an ex-evangelical. Claiming to be somebody who used to be a born-again Christian, as it were. What you see now, the strategy of the Catholic Church, with Metaxida and Scott Hahn and, 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 and these Catholic apologists, what you notice about them is that they're ex-Protestants. And they will even claim to be ex-evangelicals. That's Rome's present strategy. We've gone back to the Oxford strategy. Okay. Carl Keating is the main one. You can read Dave Hunt's debates with him and so forth. Get value some of Dave Hunt's books. Or even you can order his tapes of his debates with him. Their strategy comes from Newman. Newman it is surmised, was an agent all along because he became a Catholic and went through the ranks so quickly. However, Newman wrote something called the Treatise of the Christian, on the Development of the Christian Religion. The Treatise on the Development of the Christian Religion. In his treatise, Cardinal John Henry Newman States, and I quote him, at least 70% of the rites, rituals, customs, and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church are of pagan origin. Another Catholic cleric and major ecclesiastical figure of the era was Cardinal Manning, whose parents were from Ireland. He was called the Cockney Cardinal. In his autobiography, Cardinal Manning said, wrote, In my more than 40 years as a Roman Catholic priest, I have known a thousand different reasons why people would become Roman Catholic. Some of them like the music, the ritual, the liturgy. But I've only known one reason why someone would renounce the Roman Catholic faith, leave the Roman Catholic Church, and become, as it were, an evangelical Protestant. Only one reason. They read the Bible. <laughs> and had more questions that no priest could possibly answer. Newman tried to give those answers. And we have Newman's today. Catholic apologists. It is a strange situation when we're told by deceivers like Chuck Colson 
And Mickey Gumbel not to take people out of the Catholic Church. If you put on the Roman Catholic cable TV station, they have broadcasts like coming home of evangelical Christians who they say are giving their testimony of how they came to Rome. They can convert people to Roman Catholicism out of evangelical churches, but we can't tell them the gospel and get them out. Strange. That's what's happening. The Oxford movement was the most dangerous from the time of Whitby. The other things had to do with military campaigns, naval campaigns, plots, conspiracies, violence, sedition. But it was obvious where they came from. Whitby was seductive. The Oxford movement was seductive. And what you see happening today is this, it's this, it's this. Ecumenism. Alpha is ecumenical. God help us, Billy Graham himself is ecumenical. A man I once respected. When he first came to England in the 1940s, and after the war was over, Billy Graham said, the gospel of Jesus Christ has three enemies in today's world. Mohammedism, which is Islam, Marxism, and Romanism. What a change has come over Brother Billy. Now, I do have more time for his son, Franklin, than I have for him. And for his daughter as well. Strange. You got the Chuck Colsons. George Terry, the meeting of waters. Come back to Rome. The Oxford movement didn't really succeed. They wanted it to be another Whitby. It made headway within Anglicanism and it got some Anglicans to become high church sacramentalists, but they never left Anglicanism. So Newman left himself. But ecumenism is different. Ecumenism is the road. A road that says... We're going to take a bypass. We're going to forget our history. We're going to take a big detour. We're not going to go back and look at Bonnie Prince Charles or the Gunpowder Plot or the Armada or the Babington Plot or Mary. We're going to bypass it all. Forget it ever happened. The academic term is revisionism. You rewrite history, ignoring what you can't explain away. We're going back to Whitby. That's what they did then. That's what they are doing now. There are only two possible choices or two possible courses that are going to come into play within the next decade at most if Christ has not returned. 
One is another awakening of some description. The road back to Alder's Gate. The other 